Chapter seventeen of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. Biographia Literaria by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Chapter seventeen. Examination of the tenets peculiar to Mr. Wordsworth. Rustic life, above all, low and rustic life, especially unfavourable to the formation of a human diction the best parts of language the product of philosophers not of clowns or shepherds poetry essentially ideal and generic the language of milton as much the language of real life yea incomparably more so than that of the cottager as far then as mr wordsworth in his preface contended and most ably contended for a reformation in our poetic diction as far as he has evinced the truth of passion and the dramatic propriety of those figures and metaphors in the original poets which stripped of their justifying reasons and converted into mere artifices of connection or ornament constitute the characteristic falsity in the poetic style of the moderns and as far as he has with equal acuteness and clearness pointed out the process by which this change was effected and the resemblances between that state into which the reader's mind is thrown by the pleasurable confusion of thought from an unaccustomed train of words and images and that state which is induced by the natural language of impassioned feeling he undertook a useful task and deserves all praise both for the attempt and for the execution the provocations to this remonstrance in behalf of truth and nature were still of perpetual recurrence before and after the publication of this preface i cannot likewise but add that the comparison of such poems of merit as have been given to the public within the last ten or twelve years with the majority of those produced previously to the appearance of that preface leave no doubt on my mind that mr wordsworth is fully justified in believing his efforts to have been by no means ineffectual not only in the verses of those who have professed their admiration of his genius but even of those who have distinguished themselves by hostility to his theory and depreciation of his writings are the impressions of his principles plainly visible it is possible that with these principles others may have been blended which are not equally evident and some which are unsteady and subvertible from the narrowness or imperfection of their basis but it is more than possible that these errors of defect or exaggeration by kindling and feeding the controversy may have conduced not only to the wider propagation of the accompanying truths but that by their frequent presentation to the mind in an excited state they may have won for them a more permanent and practical result a man will borrow apart from his opponent the more easily if he feels himself justified in continuing to reject a part while there remain important points in which he can still feel himself in the right in which he still finds firm footing for continued resistance he will gradually adopt those opinions which were the least remote from his own convictions as not less congruous with his own theory than with that which he reprobates in like manner with a kind of instinctive prudence he will abandon by little and little his weakest posts till at length he seems to forget that they had ever belonged to him or affects to consider them at most as accidental and petty annexments the removal of which leaves the citadel unhurt and unendangered my own differences from certain supposed parts of mr wordsworth's theory ground themselves on the assumption that his words had been rightly interpreted as purporting that the proper diction for poetry in general consists altogether in a language taken with due exceptions from the mouths of men in real life a language which actually constitutes the natural conversation of men under the influence of natural feelings my objection is first that in any sense this rule is applicable only to certain classes of poetry secondly that even to these classes it is not applicable except in such a sense as hath never by any one as far as i know or have read been denied or doubted 
and lastly that as far as and in that degree in which it is practicable it is yet as a rule useless if not injurious and therefore either need not or ought not to be practised the poet informs his reader that he had generally chosen low and rustic life but not as low and rustic or in order to repeat that pleasure of doubtful moral effect which persons of elevated rank and of superior refinement oftentimes derive from a happy imitation of the rude unpolished manners and discourse of their inferiors for the pleasure so derived may be traced to three exciting causes the first is the naturalness in fact of the things represented the second is the apparent naturalness of the representation as raised and qualified by an imperceptible infusion of the author's own knowledge and talent which infusion does indeed constitute it an imitation as distinguished from a mere copy the third cause may be found in the reader's conscious feeling of his superiority awakened by the contrast presented to him even as for the same purpose the kings and great barons of yore retained sometimes actual clowns and fools but more frequently shrewd and witty fellows in that character these however were not mr wordsworth's objects he chose low and rustic life because in that condition the essential passions of the heart find a better soil in which they can attain their maturity are less under restraint and speak a plainer and more emphatic language because in that condition of life our elementary feelings coexist in a state of greater simplicity and consequently may be more accurately contemplated and more forcibly communicated because the manners of rural life germinate from those elementary feelings and from the necessary character of rural occupations are more easily comprehended and are more durable and lastly because in that condition the passions of men are incorporated with the beautiful and permanent forms of nature now it is clear to me that in the most interesting of the poems in which the author is more or less dramatic as the brothers michael ruth the mad mother and others the persons introduced are by no means taken from low or rustic life in the common acceptation of those words and it is not less clear that the sentiments and language as far as they can be conceived to have been really transferred from the minds and conversation of such persons are attributable to causes and circumstances not necessarily connected with their occupations and abode the thoughts feelings language and manners of the shepherd farmers in the vales of cumberland and westmoreland as far as they are actually adopted in those poems may be accounted for from causes which will and do produce the same results in every state of life whether in town or country as the two principal i rank that independence which raises a man above servitude or daily toil for the profit of others yet not above the necessity of industry and a frugal simplicity of domestic life and the accompanying unambitious but solid and religious education which has rendered few books familiar but the bible and the liturgy or hymn-book to this latter cause indeed which is so far accidental that it is the blessing of particular countries and a particular age not the product of particular places or employments the poet owes the show of probability that his personages might really feel think and talk with any tolerable resemblance to his representation it is an excellent remark of dr henry moore's that a man of confined education but of good parts by constant reading of the bible will naturally form a more winning and commanding rhetoric than those that are learned the intermixture of tongues and of artificial phrases debasing their style it is moreover to be considered that to the formation of healthy feelings and a reflecting mind negations involve impediments not less formidable than sophistication and vicious intermixture i am convinced that for the human soul to prosper in rustic life a certain vantage-ground is prerequisite it is not every man that is likely to be improved by a country life or by country labours education or original sensibility or both must pre-exist if the changes forms and incidents of nature are to prove a sufficient stimulant and where these are not sufficient the mind contracts and hardens by want of stimulants 
and the man becomes selfish, sensual, gross, and hard-hearted. Let the management of the poor laws in Liverpool, Manchester, or Bristol be compared with the ordinary dispensation of the poor rates in agricultural villages, where the farmers are the overseers and guardians of the poor. If my own experience have not been particularly unfortunate, as well as that of the many respectable country clergymen with whom I have conversed on the subject, the result would engender more than scepticism concerning the desirable influences of low and rustic life in and for itself. Whatever may be concluded on the other side, from the stronger local attachments and enterprising spirit of the Swiss and other mountaineers, applies to a particular mode of pastoral life under forms of property that permit and beget manners truly republican, not to rustic life in general, or to the absence of artificial cultivation. On the contrary, the mountaineers, whose manners have been so often eulogised, are in general better educated and greater readers than men of equal rank elsewhere. But where this is not the case, as among the peasantry of North Wales, the ancient mountains, with all their terrors and all their glories, are pictures to the blind and music to the deaf. I should not have entered so much into detail upon this passage, but here seems to be the point to which all the lines of difference converge as to their source and centre, I mean as far as, and in whatever respect, my poetic creed does differ from the doctrines promulgated in this preface. I adopt with full faith the principle of Aristotle, that poetry, as poetry, is essentially ideal, that it avoids and excludes all accident, that its apparent individualities of rank, character, or occupation must be representative of a class, and that the persons of poetry must be clothed with generic attributes, with the common attributes of the class, not with such as one gifted individual might possibly possess, but such as from his situation it is most probable beforehand that he would possess. If my premises are right and my deductions legitimate, it follows that there can be no poetic medium between the swains of Theocritus and those of an imaginary golden age. The characters of the vicar and the shepherd mariner in the poem of the brothers, and that of the shepherd of Greenhead Gill in the Michael, have all the verisimilitude and representative quality that the purposes of poetry can require. They are persons of a known and abiding class, and their manners and sentiments the natural products of circumstances common to the class. Take Michael, for instance. An old man, stout of heart and strong of limb, his bodily frame had been from youth to age, of an unusual strength, his mind was keen, intense and frugal, apt for all affairs, and in his shepherd's calling he was prompt and watchful more than ordinary men. Hence he had learned the meaning of all winds, of blasts of every tone, and oftentimes, when others heeded not, he heard the south make subterraneous music, like the noise of bagpipers on distant highland hills. The shepherd at such warning of his flock bethought him, and he to himself would say, The winds are now devising work for me. And truly at all times the storm that drives the traveller to a shelter summoned him up to the mountains. He had been alone amid the heart of many thousand mists that came to him and left him on the heights. So lived he until his eightieth year was past, and grossly that man errs who should suppose that the green valleys and the streams and rocks were things indifferent to the shepherd's thoughts fields where with cheerful spirits he had breathed the common air, the hills which he so oft had climbed with vigorous steps, which had impressed so many incidents upon his mind, of hardship, skill, or courage, joy, or fear, which like a book preserved the memory of the dumb animals whom he had saved, had fed or sheltered, linking to such acts, so grateful in themselves, the certainty of honourable gain. These fields, these hills, which were his living being, even more than his own blood, what could they less, had laid strong hold on his affections, were to him a pleasurable feeling of blind love, the pleasure which there is in life itself. On the other hand, in the poems which are pitched in a lower key, as the Harry Gill and the Idiot Boy, 
the feelings are those of human nature in general though the poet has judiciously laid the scene in the country in order to place himself in the vicinity of interesting images without the necessity of ascribing a sentimental perception of their beauty to the persons of his drama in the idiot boy indeed the mother's character is not so much the real and native product of a situation where the essential passions of the heart find a better soil in which they can attain their maturity and speak a plainer and more emphatic language as it is an impersonation of an instinct abandoned by judgment hence the two following charges seem to me not wholly groundless at least they are the only plausible objections which i have heard to that fine poem the one is that the author has not in the poem itself taken sufficient care to preclude from the reader's fancy the disgusting images of ordinary morbid idiocy which yet it was by no means his intention to represent he was even by the burr 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 uncounteracted by any preceding description of the boy's beauty assisted in recalling them the other is that the idiocy of the boy is so evenly balanced by the folly of the mother as to present to the general reader rather a laughable burlesque on the blindness of anile dotage than an analytic display of maternal affection in its ordinary workings in the thorn the poet himself acknowledges in a note the necessity of an introductory poem in which he should have portrayed the character of the person from whom the words of the poem are supposed to proceed a superstitious man moderately imaginative of slow faculties and deep feelings a captain of a small trading vessel for example who being past the middle age of life had retired upon an annuity or small independent income to some village or country town of which he was not a native or in which he had not been accustomed to live such men having nothing to do become credulous and talkative from indolence but in a poem still more in a lyric poem and the nurse in romeo and juliet alone prevents me from extending the remark even to dramatic poetry if indeed even the nurse can be deemed altogether a case in point it is not possible to imitate truly a dull and garrulous discourser without repeating the effects of dullness and garrulity however this may be i dare assert that the parts and these form the far larger portion of the whole which might as well or still better have proceeded from the poet's own imagination and have been spoken in his own character are those which have given and which will continue to give universal delight and that the passages exclusively appropriate to the supposed narrator such as the last couplet of the third stanza the seven last lines of the tenth and the five following stanzas with the exception of the four admirable lines at the commencement of the fourteenth are felt by many unprejudiced and unsophisticated hearts as sudden and unpleasant sinkings from the height to which the poet had previously lifted them and to which he again re-elevates both himself and his reader if then i am compelled to doubt the theory by which the choice of characters was to be directed not only a priori from grounds of reason but both from the few instances in which the poet himself need be supposed to have been governed by it and from the comparative inferiority of those instances still more must i hesitate in my assent to the sentence which immediately follows the former citation and which i can neither admit as particular fact nor as general rule the language too of these men has been adopted purified indeed from what appear to be its real defects from all lasting and rational causes of dislike or disgust because such men hourly communicate with the best objects from which the best part of language is originally derived and because from their rank in society and the sameness and narrow circle of their intercourse being less under the action of social vanity they convey their feelings and notions in simple and unelaborated expressions to this i reply that a rustic's language purified from all provincialism and grossness and so far reconstructed as to be made consistent with the rules of grammar which are in essence no other than the laws of universal logic applied to psychological materials will not differ from the language of any other man of common sense 
however learned or refined he may be except as far as the notions which the rustic has to convey are fewer and more indiscriminate this will become still clearer if we add the consideration equally important though less obvious that the rustic from the more imperfect development of his faculties and from the lower state of their cultivation aims almost solely to convey insulated facts either those of his scanty experience or his traditional belief while the educated man chiefly seeks to discover and express those connections of things or those relative bearings of fact to fact from which some more or less general law is deducible for facts are valuable to a wise man chiefly as they lead to the discovery of the indwelling law which is the true being of things the sole solution of their modes of existence and in the knowledge of which consists our dignity and our power as little can i agree with the assertion that from the objects with which the rustic hourly communicates the best part of language is formed for first if to communicate with an object implies such an acquaintance with it as renders it capable of being discriminately reflected on the distinct knowledge of an uneducated rustic would furnish a very scanty vocabulary the few things and modes of action requisite for his bodily conveniences would alone be individualized while all the rest of nature would be expressed by a small number of confused general terms secondly i deny that the words and combinations of words derived from the objects with which the rustic is familiar whether with distinct or confused knowledge can be justly said to form the best part of language it is more than probable that many classes of the brute creation possess discriminating sounds by which they can convey to each other notices of such objects as concern their food shelter or safety yet we hesitate to call the aggregate of such sounds a language otherwise than metaphorically the best part of human language properly so called is derived from reflection on the acts of the mind itself it is formed by a voluntary appropriation of fixed symbols to internal acts to processes and results of imagination the greater part of which have no place in the consciousness of uneducated man though in civilized society by imitation and passive remembrance of what they hear from their religious instructors and other superiors the most uneducated share in the harvest which they neither sowed nor reaped if the history of the phrases in hourly currency among our peasants were traced a person not previously aware of the fact would be surprised at finding so large a number which three or four centuries ago were the exclusive property of the universities and the schools and at the commencement of the reformation had been transferred from the school to the pulpit and thus gradually passed into common life the extreme difficulty and often the impossibility of finding words for the simplest moral and intellectual processes of the languages of uncivilized tribes has proved perhaps the weightiest obstacle to the progress of our most zealous and adroit missionaries yet these tribes are surrounded by the same nature as our peasants are but in still more impressive forms and they are moreover obliged to particularize many more of them when therefore mr wordsworth adds accordingly such a language meaning as before the language of rustic life purified from provincialism arising out of repeated experience and regular feelings is a more permanent and a far more philosophical language than that which is frequently substituted for it by poets who think that they are conferring honour upon themselves and their art in proportion as they indulge in arbitrary and capricious habits of expression it may be answered that the language which he has in view can be attributed to rustics with no greater right than the style of hooker or bacon to tom brown or sir roger lestrange doubtless if what is peculiar to each were omitted in each the result must needs be the same further that the poet who uses an illogical diction or a style fitted to excite only the low and changeable pleasure of wonder by means of groundless novelty substitutes a language of folly and vanity not for that of the rustic but for that of good sense and natural feeling here let me be permitted to remind the reader that the positions which i controvert are contained in the sentences a selection of the real language of men the language of these men and that is men in low and rustic life has been adopted 
I have proposed to myself to imitate, and as far as is possible, to adopt the very language of men. Between the language of prose and that of metrical composition, there neither is nor can be any essential difference. It is against these exclusively that my opposition is directed. I object, in the very first instance, to an equivocation in the use of the word real. Every man's language varies, according to the extent of his knowledge, the activity of his faculties, and the depth or quickness of his feelings. Every man's language has first its individualities, secondly the common properties of the class to which he belongs, and thirdly words and phrases of universal use. The language of Hooker, Bacon, Bishop, Taylor, and Burke differs from the common language of the learned class only by the superior number and novelty of the thoughts and relations which they had to convey. The language of Algernon and Sidney differs not at all from that which every well-educated gentleman would wish to write, and, with due allowances for the undeliberateness and less connected train, of thinking natural and proper to conversation, such as he would wish to talk. Neither one nor the other differ half as much from the general language of cultivated society, as the language of Mr. Wordsworth's homeliest composition differs from that of a common peasant. For real, therefore, we must substitute ordinary or lingua communis, and this, we have proved, is no more to be found in the phraseology of low and rustic life than in that of any other class. Omit the peculiarities of each, and the result, of course, must be common to all and assuredly the omissions and changes to be made in the language of rustics before it could be transferred to any species of poem except the drama or other professed imitation are at least as numerous and weighty as would be required in adapting to the same purpose the ordinary language of tradesmen and manufacturers not to mention that the language so highly extolled by mr wordsworth varies in every county nay in every village according to the accidental character of the clergyman the existence or non-existence of schools or even, perhaps, as the excitement, publican and barber happen to be, or not to be, zealous politicians and readers of the weekly newspaper, pro bono publico. Anterior to cultivation, the lingua communis of every country, as Dante has well observed, exists everywhere in parts, and nowhere as a whole. Neither is the case rendered at all more tenable by the addition of the words, in a state of excitement, for the nature of a man's words, where he is strongly affected by joy, grief, or anger, must necessarily depend on the number and quality of the general truths, conceptions, and images, and of the words expressing them, with which his mind had been previously stored. For the property of passion is not to create, but to set in increased activity. At least, whatever new connections of thoughts or images, or, which is equally, if not more than equally, the appropriate effect of strong excitement, whatever generalizations of truth or experience the heat of passion may produce, yet the terms of their conveyance must have pre-existed in his former conversations, and are only collected and crowded together by the unusual stimulation. It is indeed very possible to adopt in a poem the unmeaning repetitions, habitual phrases, and other blank counters, which an unfurnished or confused understanding interposes at short intervals, in order to keep hold of his subject, which is still slipping from him, and to give him time for recollection, or, in mere aid of vacancy, as in the scanty companies of a country stage, the same player pops backwards and forwards, in order to prevent the appearance of empty spaces in the procession of macbeth or henry the eighth but what assistance to the poet or ornament to the poem these can supply i am at a loss to conjecture nothing assuredly can differ either in origin or in mode more widely from the apparent tautologies of intense and turbulent feeling in which the passion is greater and of longer endurance than to be exhausted or satisfied by a single representation of the image or incident exciting it such repetitions i admit to be a beauty of the highest kind as illustrated by mr wordsworth himself from the song of deborah at her feet he bowed he fell he lay down at her feet he bowed he fell 
where he bowed there he fell down dead judges verse twenty seven end of chapter seventeen